It is really wonderful to see you this morning, and I sincerely hope that you had a wonderful time uh, reuniting with your loved ones, with your family, and with your friends. And, and isn't it true? This is that time of the year when we do that. We get together with our family, and we get together with our friends. And as you know, sometimes that means that we spend time uh, with people who are not Christians. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Your heart, your heart yearns for them to know and believe the Lord Jesus as we do. But why won't they? Why don't they? And I think every believer understands this heartache. Every believer understands the question that I am asking you this morning. And it was no different for the prophet Isaiah. For we read him here saying, who has believed what he has heard from us? You know what Isaiah is saying? I keep telling them, but they won't believe. And it wasn't just Isaiah. In fact, New Testament apostles quote this very passage to to express their wonder their heartache at the unbelief that they saw around them. So the Apostle John in chapter 12, he quotes this very verse to to understand the rejection of Christ by his own people. And Paul in Romans chapter 10 cites this very passage to once again to bring clarity to the situation why it is that people do not believe. And so the question that we are asking this morning is, why don't they believe? Why won't they believe? And what can possibly explain this heartbreaking reality? And the first thing that we see is that it makes no sense to trust Jesus. It makes no sense to trust Jesus. Now, if you, if you tune out everything else that I say and went back home with just that statement, that could be very misleading. So please listen carefully as I explain what I mean when I say it makes no sense to trust Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Now, if you remember, Isaiah very recently reflected on the arm of the Lord. And, and that phrase, arm of the Lord, is an expression that, that makes graphic God's power. That's what that phrase means, arm of the Lord, God's power. So if you remember back in chapter 51, verse 9, we read Isaiah saying, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? 
And back in chapter 51, we reflected upon that statement and we realized that Isaiah the prophet was directing his faithful prayer to the servant of the Lord because the servant of the Lord is the very arm of the Lord, the expression of his power to save. But not only that, Isaiah realized that it was that very servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, who brought Israel out of Egypt at the time of Exodus with great power. And so Isaiah looked back upon God's powerful delivery of his people, which he accomplished through his arm, who we are coming to understand is the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah is keeping that in mind. He prayed, deliver us powerfully once again, as you have done in the past. And then, just last week, in chapter 52, verse 10, we read this too. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Meaning, God, his powerful arm is at work again. And with power, he is going to bring salvation to the ends of the world. Can I put it this way? So far, so good. God is going to come with power, except when the arm of the Lord comes and when he bears his holy arms, meaning, you know, when he rolls up his sleeves to flex his power, it did not look anything like strength, but weakness. And so Isaiah says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, he is, of course, talking about the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord to the world seems like a young plant. And don't think that that is somehow conveying a a beautiful sight. Because you have to realize that this is the very context in which the world sees no beauty, no honor, no worth in the servant of the Lord. So when Isaiah says here that he grew up before him like a young plant, what that means is that the arm of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, seemed to the world like a tender twig that farmers prune off from a tree because it adds nothing to the tree's potential, but it gets in the way of a good harvest. When Isaiah says here that the servant of the Lord will seem like a young plant, it means that in the eyes of the world, the servant of the Lord looks worthless. And when he also says that the servant of the Lord looks like a root out of dry ground, I mean, what is a root out of dry ground? It's in a vulnerable position. It's desperately fighting a losing battle to survive. And so the servant of the Lord in the eyes of the world seems weak, not worth a second glance, and certainly not worth the trouble of keeping him around. And the servant also lacks every quality that we look for in a leader. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was just utterly unimpressive in appearance, no beauty 
that we should desire him. And consequently, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, people take one look at the servant's humiliating circumstances. They take one look at his ignoble background and his utter lack of appeal, and they misunderstand who he is, and they misunderstand his experience. Because when they look at the servant of the Lord, they see something, and they see someone that adds up to nothing. And the thing is that that was inevitable because knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus truly requires divine initiative and divine revelation. That is why Isaiah begins this passage saying, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, unless the Lord takes the initiative and with power reveals who the servant of the Lord is and the meaning of what he has come to do, apart from that revealing sovereign, gracious work of God, there is no truly knowing Jesus. There is no truly understanding Jesus. And as, as long as there is no true knowing and understanding of Jesus, it makes no sense to trust Jesus. So why is it that people do not believe? Well, they do not believe because they cannot believe. Because only God can reveal who Jesus really is, and only God can open our hearts to believe him as we should. It makes no sense to trust Jesus. And then we observe the second point this morning. If the world will not believe, it is because they cannot believe. It is because they cannot know and believe Jesus for who he really is. The second thing that we see here is that God reveals Jesus as our Savior. God reveals Jesus as our Savior. Now, if you remember from last week's passage, from chapter 52, verse 14, we heard, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And we did a quick survey of the, the setting and the overall message of book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet saw the vision of the Lord seated on his throne in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was one who was struck in judgment with leprosy because he acted with arrogance and pride in his heart. And when Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple, he realizes his own danger and professes himself a man of unclean lips because, you see, it was the lepers who went about covering their lips and cried unclean and unclean. And when Isaiah sees the Holy Lord in the temple, he realizes that he is a spiritual leper. 
And he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah realized not only was he himself a spiritual leper, but he dwelled among the people who are also disfigured and defiled by sin. And so when we looked at chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah was applying the, the descriptions of what leprosy does to the servant of the Lord, the, to the Messiah. Isaiah sees Jesus disfigured by leprosy. And what's really interesting is that ancient Jewish scholars actually thought that the Messiah was going to be a leper. Uh, and they came to that conclusion because they were struck by the apparent description of leprosy affecting the Messiah, but they did not fully appreciate that sin is a spiritual leprosy. So the only conclusion they could draw was that the Messiah was going to be a leper. But it's important for us to understand that the way the leprosy disfigures and destroys the body is an illustration of how sin disfigures and destroys our soul. So when Isaiah said in chapter 52, verse 14, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, Isaiah is not making a comment about Jesus' physical appearance, but rather that Jesus took our spiritual leprosy upon him. And because of that, he became defiled and disfigured for us. And that's really important to understand because many people today will say, well, what do you mean that I don't appreciate Jesus? I believe in Jesus. What do you mean that I don't esteem him? I respect Jesus. I believe in Jesus. He is a, a source of great inspiration. Uh, he is someone that I can look to for beautiful ethical teachings. And I look to Jesus, and I respect Jesus for this, because when I think about Jesus, I gain insight about human potential. And people do say that, don't they? But you know, none of that matters. None of that matters apart from knowing Jesus in the way that chapter 53, verses 4 through 6 tell us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That verb stricken is the same verb that in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, when King Uzziah is judged, and we read that Lord touched the king, and he was a leper the day of his death. It's the same verb, stricken, touched. That is, Isaiah sees the servant, servant of the Lord, the Messiah, severely afflicted with leprosy because of us. And that's the important part. The servant of the Lord did not deserve his suffering, but he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, 
to know and believe Jesus in a saving way means to recognize that Jesus became a substitute in our place. You know, this is precisely where people will not esteem Jesus. They'll say, you know, Jesus, I respect him because he, he has such a wonderful ethical standard. He was so inspirational. But as soon as you tell them, but do you believe that you, you, you are the reason he died? Do you believe that you are so defiled by sin that you cannot help yourself or save yourself, that you have no hope of having peace with God apart from Jesus who died for you and in your place. And as soon as you say that, they will say, nonsense. I don't believe that at all. And they will not esteem Jesus as the Redeemer of sinners. But that is precisely what it means to know Jesus in a saving way, to know, to know that he was the substitute in our place. The sin was ours. But our guilt was put on Jesus. We deserve the punishment. But he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, God's word and spirit show us that we have no way to answer for our sins. Or can I put it this way? From the moment we take our first breath, we have loved and served idols. We are born in enmity against God and we spend our whole life resisting God. How many people have you hated in your life? And Jesus said, to hate someone in your heart is to commit murder. How many people have you killed in your heart throughout your life? The air that you breathe, it's God's air. Everything you have, God gave it to you, except you take all of that and use it as instruments of rebellion against God. And when God in mercy sent his son to save sinners, mankind responded by being ashamed of him, and we esteemed him not. And the question is, is one death enough to pay for all our sins? Is one death enough to pay for all our sins? I was curious, so I looked up um, the longest prison sentence ever handed down. Um, in 1995, Terry Nichols, the man responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing, he was sentenced to 161 life sentences plus 9,300 years in prison. In 1989, a woman in Thailand was convicted of fraud and hurting many people, and she was sentenced to 141,000 and 78 years. Now, we may well have a discussion about whether that is even sensible, because there's something absurd knowing that these people will never serve the full term of their sentence. And yet there is something to be said for the fact that their crimes were so heinous 
the people who were tasked with finding justice realized that one lifetime of a man is not enough to pay for their crimes. And if that is true of the crimes that people commit against people, what can we say about the sins that we commit against God? From the very first breath we take as sinners, we have been sinning against God. We have used his gifts, his resources to rebel against them, fight him. So is one death enough to pay for all our sins? And the answer is clearly not. Even if we were to die a thousand times, that is not enough to pay for our sins. And that is why we need Jesus. Because Jesus, the righteous one, the sinless one, he put himself in our place. Now, in this passage, Isaiah's focus is on Jesus as our substitute who pays the penalty and the consequences of our sins. The the debt that we can never discharge, Jesus paid. But of course, we know, don't we, from the rest of the Bible's teachings that Jesus was a substitute in a different sense too, that he, in our place, offered up to God perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, so that there is a great exchange that has taken place. Jesus bore our sin, our guilt, and our shame so that we might stand in the place of his righteousness and be vindicated and find life. And that's what it means to know Jesus in a saving way, truly and really. We need forgiveness, and God gives it to us in Jesus. God reveals Jesus as our Savior. And that brings us to the third and the last point. We are the Lord's sheep. We are the Lord's sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see what Jesus does? He affects both a change of both of our status and our identity. We were sheep without a shepherd. We were lost and we were condemned to death. So our status was lost, and our identity was sheep that went astray. But now, because God has opened our eyes, he has opened our hearts, because we have come to know Jesus in a saving way, we now have a good shepherd who has given up his life for his sheep. So our status has been changed. Jesus changed our status from being lost to being found. And our identity has also changed. Our identity was the sheep that went astray, but now our identity in Christ is that we are God's flock. Chapter 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You know, when a shepherd carries the sheep in his arms, that sheep will never be lost. 
When a shepherd carries the sheep in his arms, that sheep is safe from all harm and danger. When a shepherd carries the sheep in his arms, that is an expression of intimacy, love, and affection. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And you see, it is the very mark of the lost people to turn their face from Jesus. And even that expression, it's, it's um, alluding to the fact that, you know, today we have modern medicines. Leprosy is no longer that horrible, disfiguring thing that it used to be. We even have a different name for it. We call it, call it Hansen's disease. And people no longer suffer that disfigurement, that, the grotesque injuries anymore. But, you know, before the dawn of modern medicine, if you saw a leper on the streets, you could not look at that person. You would turn your face. You would be both ashamed to look at that person, and you would be embarrassed for that person. And that's how the world treated Jesus, as if he was a disfigured and defiled leper. They were ashamed of him, then they were embarrassed for him. But because of what Jesus has done, something has changed in us. Because now we esteem him. We highly esteem him. And that means our relationship with Jesus means more to us than any allegiance or any commitment. And our knowledge of Jesus more precious than any earthly treasures. And so I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus this way? Is this how you know Jesus? Do you esteem him highly? Do you treasure your relationship more precious than anything else in this whole world? May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to stand in our place to receive upon his own person the guilt, the shame, the wrath caused by our own sins. For he was condemned that we might be justified. He was rejected that we might be welcomed. He suffered that we might know joy. So we give you glory, God, and we give glory to the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would knit our hearts to him, that our hearts may be filled with love and longing for him, and may we live the rest of our lives honoring and declaring his praises. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.